Efo, how are you, mate? Good, good, Jonesy. Good to be back again. Episode four, I think. It is, mate. It's hard to count up on one hand. <laughs> we'll get there. I'll get there. Nice one, mate. Um, good to see you again. It's been, what, a week already? Another week. A lot of football to be played. has been played. We now know all the top six and the final semi-finals for the A-League. We know the final for the Champions League. So plenty has been happening in the world of football. Very good, mate. Um, we have a very special guest today. A very special guest with us today. He's won two premierships with Central Coast Mariners, three premierships with Sydney FC, two championships with Sydney FC also, one FFA Cup, two K-League titles, where he was also voted in the team of the year. Uh, he won the Asian Cup with the Socceroos and had a total of 16 appearances with the Socceroos, three of which were at the 2014 World Cup. He is also the current PFA president for the Players' Union here in Australia. Welcome, Alex Wilkinson. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks, mate. How does that How does that make you feel, mate, hearing all that? <laughs> I know. Hep should be my agent. It's pumping me up. But, um, <laughs> no, it's nice. It's nice, obviously, to hear that stuff. You don't, when, you're, when you're playing the game and, and you're still playing, you don't really um, reflect on it too much because you sort of move on to the next thing once. You know, one year's over, you're on to the next one straight away. So it's um, nice to sit back and listen to. And I guess you'll enjoy it a bit more once once you sort of hang them up and retire. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing as a professional, that there's there's never a really a finish line, even after you win something. And you know that all too well, lifting a trophy a, trophy a few days ago and playing a practice game and, and training for the final that you've got next week. But... I don't know. Is there ever a time where you sit there with your old man or, or your family, or Brooke, your wife, and just chat about the journey you've been on so far? Yeah, every now and then, like you get time, a little bit of time to reflect on things. But, you know, I think that's something that, um, you know, can get lost in the professional game is the fact that you don't celebrate the highs um, as much as you should because, you know, as you said, there's always something going on or there's always something that's, that's next and you've got to shift your mind and focus. But I think, you know, it's really important that you do um, you know, celebrate the good times, titles and successful seasons and whatnot um, and take the time to do it properly because, you know, you don't really know when the next one will come along or, or if you ever get the chance to do it again. So, you know, I think that part of the part of the game is important as well. Yeah, good answer, mate. And look, we want to get straight into the good stuff, Wilco, of your career. Um, your time with the Socceroos, can you just talk us about, talk us through your your first game and the initial call-up to a Socceroos squad and, and how you enjoyed the experience of representing your country? Yeah, look, for me, I'm, I'm, you know, my Socceroos experience is a little bit different to, to the average person. I didn't get my first call-up till I was about 29, I think it was. So I sort of thought the, the ship had sailed a little bit in terms of the national team. You know, you usually, if you're not called up um, a bit earlier than that, then... You probably don't usually get the chance, but um, when Ange became coach, um, I'd worked with him before in, in the in the younger teams, in the 17s and the 20s. And, um, you know, when his first camp, uh, he called me into that. And, you know, it was a bit of a shock. It was out of the blue. Um, I remember the team manager messaged me on WhatsApp and I didn't have his number and I thought it was someone taking the piss out of me. <laughs> I just didn't believe it was true. So, um, but yeah, that was, I think, it was a game in Sydney. So I went into camp. Um, came back from Korea and went into camp there for 10 days. Didn't play, but just loved the experience of being involved and um, being around the team. And then um, I think the next camp wasn't until uh, the following March, the next year. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get called up then and, and make my debut in that game coming off the bench. So, um, yeah, look, playing for your country is 
for me the the biggest honor you can get. Uh, as you know, Hef as well. It's um it's something special and um, something that uh, I guess is, is something to be really proud of. Wilco, I've got to ask, mate. Twenty fourteen Brazil World Cup. Um, tell us a little bit about the experience and and how was camp. Yeah, it was um it was an awesome experience. It was as I sort of touched on before. It was for me. I was real real new to the setup, so it was all um you know if you'd asked me a year before if I would have been involved, there was no chance that I would have said yes. So essentially, when I made my debut was pretty much the last game before the World Cup camp started. So I made my debut in that game and then um, got called up into a squad of 30 for the um, for the World Cup squad, which we all met in um, in New South Wales because we had a friendly game against South Africa before we left. And as the camp went along, um, the numbers had to be cut. So eventually I had to get down to a squad of 23. So after the first game, in Sydney when we played South Africa, I was just pretty, I was waiting for a tap on the shoulder to get, get sent home. That got cut down to, I think, 20, uh, 26, I think, from 34 went home. And so I was still there and got on the plane to Brazil. And then we had another friendly over there um, against Croatia a week before the, the tournament. And then another three people had to get sent home um, a couple of days before the tournament, which is, you know, pretty hard for them. And, um, and then yeah, once once I didn't get the tap on the shoulder, then I was I was in the squad, and um, and then like a week later, I was I was in the starting team, walking out against Chile. So I was sort of running my third start for the national team, and, and here you are in a World Cup. So it was sort of it all happened really quickly, and um, you know, didn't have too much time really to think about it. It's more when you look back after the tournament, you go, "Wow, that was crazy." But <laughs> just being in Brazil made it a little bit more special as well. Obviously, they live and breathe football, and the way that you know their fans. Um, embrace, I guess, the game and and I guess the party atmosphere around football was, you know, made it pretty special as well. And it was just a, an awesome experience. Mate, you just touched on Chile. Um, you went up against Alexis Sanchez in that game. Um, very surreal experience, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, it was. We had a we had a tough group that in that World Cup. We had Chile, um, you know, the, the Netherlands who made the World Cup final. In 2010, and Spain obviously won the World Cup in 2010. So it was a, it was a tough group and some great players to get to come up against. As you, as you mentioned, Alexis Sanchez was one of them. And you know, we started that game against Chile pretty poorly. And you know, I think it was probably down to I guess the lack of experience at at, at World Cup level or in big games for our squad. You know, we're a pretty young team, I guess. And you know, we were two nil down, two nil down after about 20 minutes, but we slowly clawed our way back in. And Timmy got a goal half time and second half we, we did quite well and ended up scoring really late on I think an injury time and we were pushing for for an equaliser and that gave us a bit of confidence going into that next game against the Netherlands in which you know we performed a lot better but still couldn't quite get a result I guess. Yeah you can going from Dane's question or Jonesy's question there Wilco you can tell he's a Man United fan with Alexis Sanchez because <laughs> you played against Torres Villa at uh, Spain and then in the Netherlands you had Robin and Van Persie to deal with as well. Um, for me, I watched every game and I was watching you play, of course, because we spent a bit of time together at the Mariners and I just felt you were so calm and consistent and in all those games you weren't overawed by the fact that you were playing in a World Cup in Brazil and you only had one game with the team leading up to that. Uh, am I right to say that you were calm and, and controlled in that or was it a little bit of a case of a duck on the water? Yeah, I think once you're out there sort of playing, you're good. But I think obviously in the lead-up, there's nerves and whatnot. And you're looking at 
before every game, uh, Teza Ante Milicic, the assistant, would put up on the in the team room like the, I guess the every player from the opposition's team and their strengths and weaknesses and whatnot. And you looked at the players in our group, especially against the, in the Spain game, <laughs> and you're like, these guys are just uh, you know the superstars of world football. It doesn't matter what eleven they put out; they they could they'd still arguably be the strongest eleven in, in world football. So, you know, you're always, um, I guess, sort of. Uh, looking to who you're going to be coming up against and whatnot in those games. But I guess once you're out there, you know yourself, once you're out there, you sort of get caught up in the game. and You're not worrying about who your sort of direct opponent is. You're more sort of concentrating on your game and, and what you've got to do and what your job is. And, and it's not till after the game you sort of look back and go, wow, that was you know pretty special to come up against guys like that. And as I mentioned, the Spain, the Spain team was, was something else. I mean, um, you know, Iniesta was, was untouchable in the game we played him. We just couldn't get the ball off him. And, yeah. I remember Fabregas came on, I think with 30 to go, and we were already spent by then, and he just he ran the show. He was unbelievable. So it's a privilege to sort of play against, you know, these types of players and see um, what sort of level they're at. Mate, such an amazing experience, and what a story for, for your kids and your grandkids in the future, the players you played against. And, mate, like I said, I watched every, every game. You were so calm and consistent. You could have been playing against the Mariners, let alone Spain, you know. It was... A great performance. You would have done everyone you know proud and your family. And, and I guess that consistency carried yourself and the squad into the Asian Cup experience as well here in Australia. Yeah, exactly right. I think that, um, you know, that as I, as I mentioned before, that sort of uh, that squad and that playing group hadn't had a lot of experience together going into the World Cup. And I think those sort of three games and then after that, we had quite a few friendlies where, to be fair, the results weren't great. And, I, you know, I remember Ange being under under a bit of pressure at the time and because the results weren't coming. But, you know, every time we got together, he'd, you know, pull the video out from the game before and, and show us things that, you know, were going well despite the results maybe not falling into place just yet. He was happy with how things were progressing. And, um, you know, once that Asian Cup sort of started and uh, we got that positive first result, um, you know, things sort of flowed on from there. And obviously being at home in Australia made a huge difference. Um, you know, having the tournament on home soil and, and having all the all the fans in the stand and whatnot helped. And, yeah, we just sort of went on, went on a roll from that first game and um, and didn't look back. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned that about Ange Postacoglu. There was a lot of pressure going into that Asian Cup as well. But is that how he – is that his main – uh, a way of keeping the confidence high of the players by showing them the video because, as we said, um, as a country, we lost those few games in the World Cup. So how do you, how did he keep the confidence high and keep you players believing in the system that he had you guys playing and giving you the belief that we can actually win this Asian Cup as well? Yeah, that's something that he was just so so big on is, is his belief and his unwavering belief no matter what result no matter if you cop goals he just had his belief in how he wanted to play and he'd stick to it come hell or high water no matter what and he instilled that belief within the players that you know what if you make a mistake playing the way I want to play then I'll put my hand up and say it's my fault you know it's, it's not it's not your fault you're trying to do the right thing um and and that was something that he was really really good at is is, is instilling belief in in the squad and then any individual players to buy into the way he wanted to play and he and look, he had that big picture in his mind, knowing that you know if if we could get to um, you know somewhere close to the way he wanted um, us to play, then we'd be successful. And um, as I said, in the games leading up, he could see things progressing, but you know the results probably weren't um, coming and backing that up. But 
once the Asian Cup started, I think, um, you know, the, the boys played some good football and also the results started to come and it all sort of married up together and, and um, proved successful. And how much did it help having someone like Mila Yedinak there as the captain for Ange and for yourself in terms of um, making you feel comfortable and putting his arm over your shoulder who, you know, once you were his captain, now he's your captain at national team level. How much of a presence is he in that team? Yeah, look, Mille, you know, I've known Mille since, you know, we were pretty young. We played in the under-20 national team together. And, you know, he's a, he's a fantastic bloke, a real down-to-earth, humble guy, um, a fantastic leader. As you said, a, a huge presence. You know, he doesn't say much, but when he does say it, you sort of, you know, you, you stop and listen because, um, you know, from what he's, what he's done and what he's been through and his experiences, not only with the national team, but club level. And, you know, um, you know, we were both there when he came to the Mariners all that time ago and um, was training for free and coming up the highway and um, just hoping to get, you know, an injury replacement position or whatever it was. And the journey that he's been on since that day has been, been unbelievable. And, um, you know, he's one of the best guys you'll meet in football and I couldn't be happier for, for what he's achieved, um, both, you know, in his club career and, and his uh, international career. He's been unbelievable. And, you know, it was sad to see him, um, I guess, hang up the boots recently because I reckon he still had, you know, a lot more to give. Yeah, definitely. I agree, mate. And, yeah, I'll never forget when he stepped up for one of his first ever free kicks for us at the Mariners. And we had a free kick on the edge of the box and there was four or five of us crowding around it, like myself, Hutch, all thinking that we were free kick specialists. And then we just <laughs> hear this voice behind us go, get out of the way, I'm taking it. And we turn around <laughs> and we see Millet just staring staring at us and we go, okay. And everyone just moved out of the way and obviously he buried at top corner. I don't think we, any of us had ever seen him practice one at training. And he went on to score, I think, five or six free kicks from outside the box without yeah. ever practicing. So, yeah, funny story from him. But, yeah, he's a great guy and, as you said, uh, awesome career as, as yourself just to sit back and watch you boys achieve the things you've achieved. It's been brilliant. We'll go the Mariners. Yeah, Sorry, mate. I was just going to say, no, he's a great he, as a defender. He's a great guy to have in front of you because you know you always feel like there's someone there to break up the play in front of you and and protect the back four. And he was he was always you know so good at that. It was, it was a pleasure to play with. Yeah, brilliant. We'll go. I, I hear many stories from the Mariners' days. Um, <laughs> good or bad? Always uh, cozy, cozy. We might say that. Um, Mates, what you know, you guys have had a really successful season with Sydney this year. You know, um, won it by a fair way. What what makes this team or the Mariners team different to where you know your team now? Um, look, I think uh, I'm a big believer in, in team culture and um, you know the culture that um, within the dressing room and within the club uh, making making a huge difference. And I think that's something we had. Um, you know, a really great culture in the Mariners in the early days. You know, Heffel attested that. We had, you know, Laurie McKinner as coach, um, who he just knew how to get the best out of the boys. And um, he, he knew um, how to recruit players that were not only good players and good footballers, but good people. And I think, um, you know, the culture sort of um, grew organically in that squad because everyone lived on the coast um, after training. Everyone who lived five, ten minutes away, we'd spend a lot of time together off the pitch. And, you know, when you get on with people and, um, you know, your actual friends, you know, you, you tend to work harder and do that extra uh, mile or whatever it is on the pitch to be successful. And, um, 
you know, I think especially in a salary cap league where essentially all teams can spend, I guess, the same amount of money. Team culture for me is hugely important, and um, I know at, at Sydney we've got we've built a really really good culture here as well um, with the coaching staff and the, and the playing group. It's a little bit different in terms of us all living close together because it's Sydney and it's huge, and we don't get to spend as much time off together. Um, time off when we're off the time together when we're off the pitch, but um, you know we spend a lot of time at training. We're in for breakfast and lunch every day, and um, just little things like that. Just you know, make sure everyone gets along, and um, I think it takes you a, takes you a long way. Yeah, I agree, mate. And those times at the Mariners are very, very fond memories. And as soon as I retired from football, it wasn't long until I'd moved back up to the Central Coast for a few years as well. So always, always good memories. And, and when I go back to the Central Coast, I I see the setup that the Mariners have there now. And they trained at Plume Park this year. They had the setup there at Tugra not long after we left, uh, after I left in 2010. And I guess that was the biggest stumbling block early in the early years for us, one that Laurie McKinnon had to deal with quite a bit in terms of where we were training each week and keeping the players yeah. positive. And he was he was able to do that so easily just with his personality and his character, as you said, and getting the best out of the boys regardless of what challenges were in front of us. But I guess when Arnie took over up there, and you can speak on Arnie, I guess, in the Mariners and Sydney FC change rooms, how much did he change or... Did he make many improvements when he took over at the Mariners and also um, his time at Sydney FC? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, I think Laurie McKinnon, Laurie McKinnon was the perfect person to start up a club. You know, he would yeah. do anything for that club, for, you know, for the members, for the fans, um, for the players. And it, he was exactly what that club needed early doors because, as you said, there was all sorts of issues in terms of training grounds and, um, keeping players happy and and whatnot, and um, you know a lot of other coaches would have wiped their hands with that. It's you know with all the problems he had to deal with, and then, yeah. I guess when Arnie came in, he brought that um, that experience and that professionalism with him. He'd been involved with the national team for a long time. Um, Arnie for me is is one of the best tactical um, coaches I've ever worked with. He's he does a lot of work on the on the tactical side of game and and getting that message across to players. I think he's very good at. It. He makes it very simple. Um, breaks it down so that every player sort of knows their jobs in and out. Um, and I guess that's what sort of made us so successful, especially at Sydney. Um, you know, we'd, we'd have players coming in and out of the squad through suspension and injuries, but we wouldn't miss a beat because everyone sort of knew their jobs backwards. And, um, you know, that sort of just, uh, you know, helped, helped our success over the, the time that he was at the club. And, and now, obviously, with Bimby in charge, you know, he hasn't changed uh, an awful lot. He's put his tweak on, on a few different things, but you know he saw how successful we'd sort of been, so he didn't want to change, or make wholesale changes, I guess. And um, you know we we've sort of continued on our way. Uh, Wilco, with with the lockdown, how how's that affected preparation? Yeah, it was difficult. It was, um, you know, we were uh, I think we were out of out of training for about three months, so you know we weren't really sure how long it would last to start with, um, and then it sort of started to drag on and on. It was nice. Origin, uh, you know, to start with, to have a bit of a break. But after a couple of weeks, everyone was sort of getting itchy feet and wanting to get back into it. And you know, it was difficult because you know everyone's in different situations. Some players have kids, some don't. Um, you know, so finding time to, I guess, do the programs that were set and um, and whatnot to keep yourself fit was was difficult for each individual player. But everyone managed to to find time to, um, you know, keep themselves ticking over because we weren't really sure when the season was going to start or if it was going to restart at all. So 
we had to sort of be ready because we knew that when it did, we wouldn't have too much of a, I guess, an opportunity to train together and, and get much fitness under our belts. So, yeah, it was difficult, but, um, you know, it's the same for all teams. And I guess we're one of the lucky ones at Sydney who, um, you know, we're hosting the, the hub and all the teams from the state have made huge sacrifices coming here and finishing off the season, you know, without their, their friends and family and, and, all, and on a decreased uh, wage as well. So, you know, those are the ones that are, are doing the hard yards at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. That that's been the big, the key topic, hasn't it? The sacrifice that all these players are making. Uh, we've spoken about it a few times on here on the podcast, and um, it's good to have fellow players like yourself um, acknowledge that as well for these guys who had that debacle coming up from Melbourne and Wellington doing two lockdowns themselves. And it just shows how much the players love the game and and want to put the game before themselves, and obviously taking big pay cuts as well. So a huge. Um, a huge sacrifice from these players and, and the level of football that we've been watching over these six weeks and, and now leading into the finals, it's really exciting Some seeing some great styles of play and, and in your team in particular, Wilco, for Sydney FC, I'm a big fan of how you guys play. But in terms of playing out from the back, so I watched PS, PSG and Leipzig um, yesterday and mm-hmm. PSG won 3-0, but Leipzig copped two goals in the first half um, well, one was disallowed, but from trying to force things and play out from the back, and they had guys like Neymar and Mbappe just chasing them down, hunting impacts, and and winning it in a high press and scoring. Now, with you guys at Sydney, I don't often see you taking too many risks playing out from the back. Is that something from Stevie Corica and yourself, uh, just recognizing when it's a good time to play or not, or is that something you speak about before a game, not taking that kind of risk? No, not, not not necessarily, but I think as you, you, you touched on it, it's all about the, the recognition of when's a good time to play and when's not. You know, I, I, I don't think there has to be, um, you know, a, a distinct way of playing out every single time. You know, some teams are told to do it regardless of whether there's players there ready to press and whatnot. And a lot of the time it just, you know, can lead to danger and can lead to goals if there's any errors. But at the same time, if you do it right, it can also open up, open up the team very, very quickly and you can be on the attack. But... You know, I think, um, you know, Bimby's of the opinion that if it's on, you play quickly. If you can do it um, fast without the, you know, the opposition being set, that's probably the best way to do it. Um, but if not, you know, we, we squeeze and, um, you know, he, Redders will, will kick it long and then we'll try to get, get the next ball and get it down and play from there. But it's sort of no hard and fast rules, just more if it's on. Yeah, you know, he's good. more than happy to play it. Um, if it's not, then, you know, go the other way. Yep, fair enough, and that's why he got the best defensive record again in the season. So well done to that, mate. Wilco, want yeah, to, thanks, mate. Want to ask you, mate? Um, you've been one of the most consistent players, you know, for many years. How many seasons have the legs still got in them? Yeah, I don't know, mate. To be honest, it's, uh, Dang, I've got next James, year. Jeez, <laughs> <I've got, geez. laughs> hard hitting questions. It's a fair question, mate. It's a fair question. Um, yeah, I've got next year. Uh, at the club again so I'm looking forward to that but it's just sort of a year by year when you get to this age it's, at the moment like uh, my body's feeling really good actually I've um, you know haven't had any niggles or any injuries this season which has been great and um, I guess I'm a, a little bit lucky in the fact that at the back there you don't probably have to run as much as a lot of the other positions and you know I get all the, the younger midfielders in front of me to run more and save my legs a little bit but um yeah we'll just sort of see i mean once i get through next year or halfway through next year it'll probably give me a, a little bit more of an idea if, if i'll be able to keep going and then obviously if, if sydney want to keep me there so we'll just play it by you 
Yeah, that's good, mate. And I, yeah, from me watching you, I think you've got a yeah at least another couple of years in you for sure. It just comes down to whether you'd be keen to do that and put your body through that again, so to speak. But have you got one eye on coaching or anything like that? You're a good leader. You know the game. You've had some great coaches over the years. Is that something that you have one eye on while you're still playing? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't really decided if I want to go into the, the coaching game or not yet. I think, um, look, it's definitely an option. Um, you know, the, the admin side of, you know, sport and, and football sort of interests me as well. I'm studying sports business at uni, so... Um, you know, that could be another um, avenue I could sort of look to go into as well. But I'd like to I'd like to stay in the game in, in some capacity. It's, it's all I've known basically since, you know, I was 16, 17 when I, when I turned professional. So it'd be a shame to, to sort of get out of the game altogether. So I'd like to, to stay involved in some capacity, but I'm um, not, not too sure in, in, which, in which way at the moment. Wilco, what do you enjoy doing, mate, outside of football? Mate, I don't get much time to do to anything with the family. I've got two kids. I've got a, um, an eight-year-old and a four-year-old who keep me pretty busy. And, um, you know, with football, you're obviously away a lot on the weekends, um, you know, travelling interstate or, or training and preparing for a game. So when I do get a chance to be off and um, throughout the week and, and whatnot, I'm just trying to spend time with them. And, you know, we love going to the beach and spending time near the water. And just uh, my little one plays soccer now. So... I'm busy carrying um, him around to games and, and whatnot, so don't get a lot of time for myself. But um, when I do, it's usually just, just spent with the fam, chilling out, not doing too much. Yeah, the best awesome. time you can get, mate. Family time, isn't it? So that's uh, good. That's it. Um, and look, Wilco, we're going to chat a little bit about the A-League now. I think I've pumped you up enough and you can send me the check later in the week. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> Thanks, we've got you another two-year deal. You'll be right. Yeah. <laughs> um, 400 house car. So if we go, <laughs> if we talk about the A-League, um, we saw three players in the Golden Boot race, uh, Jamie McLaren, Jamie LaFondra, very good player, teammate of yours, and obviously Barisha. And leading into the game last night, I noticed that a round four goal for Barisha had been awarded as an own goal and taken from his list. Did that have anything to do with Sydney FC, mate? <laughs> I heard about it. I heard about that um, that it had been taken and he was appealing it. But I didn't know. I, was it the goal against Victory, I think it was? I don't know, but... Yeah, I'm not um, sure. He's done, he's done unbelievable, but to be fair to him, because he, was, he wasn't even close to the top of the the, um, the table in, in the Golden Boot race up until about Christmas. And then after Christmas, he's absolutely just been banging him in. So he's another one who's just ageless. He just Every year, he just keeps turning up and keeps banging goals in. He's a great finisher. Yeah, he's just one of those ultra-competitive guys, isn't he? You'd love to have him in your team, hate to play against him, that old saying. But um, Jamie McLaren ended up winning it on 22 goals. Uh, Diamante wins Player of the Year. How do you find playing against him? Yeah, look, um, Diamante's been great for the league. Not only his, um, you know, his performances on the pitch, but also his, his personality offered. He's like a you know, lovable character and seems so enthusiastic about um, you know, being here in Australia and, and playing for Western United and you know, that's everything you want in a marquee. You know, you want someone performing on the pitch, but also, you know, to be a great ambassador for the game off the pitch. And he's he's a perfect example of that. And, you know, he's still um, fantastic to play against on the pitch. You know, some great touches, great vision, can whip a ball um, unbelievably well. And, uh, you know, it's great to see him out here. And it's good um, that he's going to stay for at least another year or, or so in the league, which is which is good to hear. And, 
as I said, the more sort of high-profile players that can perform like that, we can get over here, the better. Yeah, well said, mate. Exactly. And bums in seats is what we need as well for the league. So hopefully we get players of his calibre for other teams as well. Um, over this um, this restart to finish the season, we didn't have any VAR, but we've just heard that VAR is back for the finals. Just want to give us a quick thought on how you found not having it for those last three or four games and now going back to that. Is it something you're looking yeah. forward to or...? Yeah, I don't know. I'm a little bit undecided. I've liked the way that the games have just flowed over the last mm. month. Um, you know, no stoppages. Um, no, you know, if the ref misses a, a decision, the ref misses a decision. Everyone moves on real quickly. There's no yeah. no debate about it. Um, it's just human error, which, you know, essentially there's something nice about that. You know, the fact that, yeah, before the VAR came along, you know, people would sort of blame the refs or blame the linesman for a decision. But... After that, they just move on and get on with it. You know, now once the VARs in, it's, um, I don't know. It, it seems like everything's a lot more stop start, and, and and I don't think it's fixed a lot of the problems that people sort of envisage it would. But I guess on the other, you know, putting the shoe on the other foot, I suppose in in big games in final series, um, you don't want to be you know losing a game on a bad decision or, or something that's been missed. So I can understand why they brought it in. Yeah. Um, let's just hope it goes smoothly. Yeah, that's right, mate. And last one for you. So we did mention that you're the PFA president representing the players at the Players Union. We know that at the moment, a lot of the collective bargaining agreement negotiations are taking place. Can you comment on how that's looking at the moment and how far off uh, finalising the new CBA we are? Yeah, look, um, you know, the the, the current CBA is expired. Um, We extended the the old one for, for three months to get this season finished. So that um, expires on August 31. And then, um, you know, there'll be no CBA after that. So that's currently being negotiated at the moment. Um, in terms of being um, close, we're, we're not too sure. We had a, we've had had a couple of meetings now in the last two weeks and um, we're sort of just waiting on, on getting some things from, from the other side and, and whatnot. But look, hopefully it can get done because, um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty around or, or in the playing group in terms of what comes next. You know, we've got a lot of players coming off contract at the end of this month. And then for the players that do have a contract, they're not sure what it's worth or mm. um, what it's going to look like going forward. So I think there's a lot to be worked out. Um, you know, scheduling's one of them, when the next season's going to start, when it's going to end, then um, what the broadcast um, agreement's going to look like after this year when Fox uh, aren't with us anymore. So there's a lot of questions to work through and... Um, you know, I know both sides um, are working really hard at, at getting getting an outcome, and um, let's just hope it can be done, you know, really soon, and, and hopefully um, by the end of August. Thank you, mate. Thanks for that update. And look, thank you very much for the chat. It's been it's been really insightful. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot out of it, especially when you talk about your time in the Socceroos and in championship winning teams and the culture behind that. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, mate. Pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on.